brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, four videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. Almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there Beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested Every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know Unless you really do Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us Just don't know to what degree Where would we be without THC? I said chat Greg Carwood and Company Side chatters, it seems that as far back as we can take human history, man has been interacting with the many faces of the paranormal. From early cave drawings and the rituals of our ancestors, to fairies, elves, Bigfoot, lake monsters, and of course those pesky gray aliens. And the Western debate still rages on. Are they from some other planet, the inner earth, some other plane, or some product of our own deeper mind? Not surprisingly, while our modern culture is still stuck on these sorts of questions and the acceptance of such creatures, We need only look to the past to pull out explanations that suit the situation just fine. And sadly, the models constructed by Plato, Socrates, other Greek philosophers, and plenty of indigenous cultures are not brought into the current discourse like they should be. Well, my friends, today's guest Patrick Harper knows this all too well as he has dusted off these old frameworks, stitched together more insights awarded by the passage of time, and laid it all out in his book Daemonic Reality way back in the mid-90s, and for me, it still dwarfs a lot of the offerings of paranormal publishing today. He's also tackled topics like alchemy in Mercurius, The Marriage of Heaven and Earth, the true nature and history of the imagination in The Philosopher's Secret Fire, and the rest of life's great mysteries in The Secret Tradition of the Soul. All the way from Dorset, England, a keeper of deep Fortean files, restorer of neglected ideas, and passionate advocate of the mystic imagination. Patrick, my man, welcome to THC. Thanks, Greg. Lovely introduction. (laughs) I try. Hope I can live up to it. Oh, I'm sure you will. I am really excited for this. I know that you primarily concentrate on your novels, and the work I'm focused on goes back a while now, but I have read both Daemonic Reality and The Philosopher's Secret Fire, and I think they're both great and deserve to be talked about despite their age. They've helped me to color in some blank spots on the mental map for sure, and 
I don't typically start by asking the old cliche question of how did you get into this stuff? But you seem to be born into a family that was quite open to the weird, didn't you? Yeah, that's right, Greg. Well, my mother was a keen spiritualist, her own mother having been a very fine trance medium. And my father, who was Irish, pretty much took the indigenous beings of Ireland for granted, even though, strangely, he wasn't kind of a native Irish. He was what's called Anglo-Irish, that's to say a Protestant Irish, not a Catholic Irish. And so his culture was really English, and he wasn't supposed to believe in fairies, but all the same, he saw them twice. And he was, you know, a pretty hard-headed businessman. He had no truck with the supernatural normally, so it came as a surprise to him. But he never attempted to hush it up or anything like that. So he'd entertain us with stories of the good people, as they're known, when we were children. So I was pretty much open to the notion of other worlds from an early age, you know, and despite the attempts of my expensive education to drum this out of me, it failed. I thought that once I'd left university, left school, I thought I'd better get a job, but I couldn't get a job until I had a worldview. Mm. And that worldview had to include anomalous things like, you know, fairies and UFOs, which I got very interested in. I thought it would take me about a week to sort that out, and then I could settle down and become a respectable banker or something like that. <laughs> but of course, you know, 20 years later, I'm still not a respectable banker. I'm not a respectable anything, you know. I still haven't <laughs> sorted it out. Well, I think that is just super interesting about your father. He saw, I guess, the Fey folk twice. Were these just brief sightings, I assume? No, they're quite long sightings. No, he was, uh, as a teenager, he was in a place called Muckross Abbey, which is near Tipperary in County Limerick, is it? No, County Tipperary. And he saw two small creatures, beings, fairies, little people, tussling over a bag. They seem to be pulling it to and fro. And a third one was watching them, and suddenly the third one looked up and saw him watching them and seemed surprised that in a flash they vanished. Mm. So that was the first time he saw them. Um, his sister also saw them. She was equally amazed, and that was a very spooky sighting because she saw a dead person amongst them but i don't want to talk about it too much because it's rather personal but it's interesting that recently died people can be seen amongst the fairies and that's why the notion of someone being taken is ambiguous it can mean both taken to god as it were as the priests would have us believe but it can also mean taken by the fairies and that's very very old folklore the folklore is, is that if you dig up the grave, you don't find anything in it except stones because they're taken body and soul into the other world. Mm. So that's folklore that persists in Scotland and in other parts of Europe as well. Well, that's super interesting. The one little small sighting I had when I was young had the similar motif of when the thing was seen, it like notices it's being seen, looks at you and with a look of surprise and then quickly tries to be unseen. And so when that pops up, it always resonates with me. And another thing kind of along those lines with these encounters is it seems that a lot of the time 
people feel compelled to look in a specific direction that they might not otherwise look. And then they see the most amazing thing they've seen in their life. And that's, I don't know, maybe some weird clue that it has some deep conscious connection. Yes, that's true. What did you see, Greg? <laughs> well, I have a hard time putting it in any of the conventional boxes. And the whole thing was over in like a minute. But I saw a darkly colored humanoid thing, black or gray, when I was young, on a walk with my parents, looking down into a wooded ravine. It was kind of hunched over on all fours, and when it locked eyes with me, it was obvious that it had an expression and an intelligence that was more than just animal, but it had the same look of surprise that you described, and then it took maybe five or ten big steps off in a single direction and kind of disappeared. I called over to my parents, but they didn't really realize how serious I was until it was too late. And just to be the only one who saw it was quite upsetting. That sounds frightening. Yeah, I don't like the sound of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm lucky to have seen it. You know, it's one of those things. I think a lot of people have these kind of weird moments that sometimes only take a few seconds, but they alter your worldview forever. And that's maybe the point of these encounters to a degree. Yeah. I'm a bit worried about you Americans, because whenever I watch so-called real-life shows on television that are over from America, there seem to be a lot of demons in America, and we just don't really have them here. You know, we have people like the little people, like the fairies, are certainly ambiguous. You know, they can do you a bit of harm as well as a bit of good, but they're not demonic, you know. I fear for you Americans. <laughs> I don't know why it is that you know, we have, for instance, a lot of ghosts, but very few of them are really malevolent. You know, mm -hmm. they don't seem to be sort of demonic presences. But maybe I'm watching the wrong programs or maybe the programs are skewing it or something. <laughs> well, no, hey, I'm worried about us, too. So <laughs> I'm with you there. Um, you know, another thing about your family that I thought was interesting is your grandmother was a medium that actually, I guess, channeled an entire book by an American pulp fiction writer from the 30s, Edgar Wallace. That's pretty interesting. That's right. Yeah, I think she didn't quite finish it. But no, Edgar Wallace rather plagued her. He was rather a angry man and rather arrogant, and she didn't really like him. But she thought, oh, well, you know, he's forcing his way through. You know, I'll humor him in the hope that he'll calm down a bit. Um there's no way of telling whether this is the actual spirit of Edgar Wallace or something else. But then that's the problem about spiritualism. You don't know quite what the status of spirits is. But at the same time, you know, she'd never heard of him and she had no reason to. Um, it certainly wasn't a hoax. You know, she was fed up with having to spend a lot of valuable time channeling this rather racy prose of which she disproved, you know. so. <laughs> I don't know what that's about. I've still got it somewhere, but I've never actually read the book. I think I started it, but it probably wasn't one of his best. <laughs> that's the trouble with spirit channeling. You think you're going to get truth from the horse's mouth, as it were, you know, cutting out the middleman. But in fact, it's usually a bit substandard, you know. Their philosophy is not up to much, and their <laughs> messages aren't very illuminating. Mm -hmm. And... You know, you mentioned demons. This is kind of leading right into things I was going to talk to you about because it's pretty common to compare like fairy lore and alien abduction encounters these days. We talk about the cultural context that seems to play a role, that sort of thing. 
But there's still a lot of fuzziness around these ideas, I think. But your contention seems to be that fairies, elves, aliens, ghost cats, sea monsters, and the rest of it are all manifestations of daemons. And this is an old idea, but can you flesh this out a bit for us? Where does this term and description come from? Well, it comes from the ancient Greeks, of course. But daemons or daimones, daimons, were a recognized class of being. And they were kind of interesting because they mediated between us and the gods. I mean, the most famous daimon in antiquity was Eros, the god of love. He wasn't a god, he was a daimon. And he kind of mediates between us and the other gods. And that's sort of psychologically true in the sense that love is a perspective that all the gods have and that we have towards them. But Eros is kind of not an entity in its own right almost. It's kind of an inbuilt perspective that is common to all the gods. Without Eros, we couldn't connect with anything. You know, Eros isn't just about, for instance, sex. It's about the way in which we connect to the world is through an erotic connection. So it makes sense that he's a daimon. The daimons were said to inhabit this strange middle realm, which Plato refers to and which the Neoplatonists elaborated on, the realm that they called the soul of the world. And this whole realm mediated between us and the divine world, or in Plato's case, the world of the forms, the real world of which this world is only a shadow, that everything in this world participates in or is an echo of the real world of the forms, the divine world. That's the idea. But in order for us to have any trafficking with this real world beyond our own, we have to have a mediating principle, and that is the soul of the world. And that is where the daimons live, or else it's the realm that the daimons manifest as. Does that make sense? It does, yes. The gods would live in the ideal world. Ours is kind of a shadow mirror of that. And they're joined by the soul of the world, this daemonic reality. They kind of connect us to the gods. I think it does make sense. And today it's kind of common to just think physical world, spirit world. But this model seems to give a lot more detail than that, which I like. How did they arrive at these sorts of conclusions? They're pretty deep. Yeah, I don't know how they arrived at them. My guess is they arrived at them through observation. Mm -hmm. They probably saw them. The most perplexing aspect of the soul of the world, and indeed of the daimons or daemons to us, is that they can be both physical and non-physical, which fits very well our own apparitions and visions and otherworldly encounters. We tend to identify the physical with the real and the spiritual with the ethereal, but diamonds can be both at once. They're always contradictory creatures. They're paradoxical. And that's why the fairies aren't just phantoms, that they can give you a nasty blow or a blast or a shock, a bit like the aliens can give you a zap with their ray guns or whatever, a bit like the way that UFOs seem absolutely physically real, but then they behave in ways that defy the laws of physics. And that's why I was attracted to the daimons. You know, 
I found in the ancients a model that didn't worry about all the contradictions and paradoxes that seem to beset ufology and other studies of the paranormal. Right. I think it's great, too, because that is the debate. Are they physical? Well, they're leaving these physical traces in some cases, but then they're disappearing and we get stuck in this binary of what they could be. And then here's this third option. And to maybe flush out the soul of the world for people, you know, another wrapper that you could use to think about it is the imagination or the collective unconscious. These are basically all trying to describe this connective tissue between our world and the gods, right? Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, I think the, the best way of thinking about it is as a kind of other world, which is real but hidden. But the intellectual models for this other world have been the soul of the world, as you say, and then later amongst the German romantic philosophers and the English romantic poets, they called it the imagination. And then latterly, the depth psychologists like C.G. Jung have called it the collective unconscious. Now, they're not exactly the same thing, but they're all analogous to each other. Or rather, I'm claiming that they're analogous to each other. And I'm especially interested in the romantic imagination, which was you know, almost the opposite of the way we talk about imagination today. It's not about making things up or picturing things that are absent to the senses. It's really a whole autonomous realm, another world in its own right, which generates these archetypal images, which are the diamonds. And the diamonds are great shapeshifters, of course, so that they can appear as almost anything, which also generates those narratives, which we call myths. And once again, you know, the word myth has become degraded. It means something untrue. Whereas I think the myths are the the true stories of the soul, as it were. Psychologically, they are our foundation stories. The only thing is, is that we shouldn't take them literally. Mm -hmm. So the diamonds, they are real. In fact, they underpin our lives. One of the things I discovered when I was writing my book about the soul was how almost universal the idea of a personal daimon is, a kind of guardian angel is. You know, it's incredibly prevalent across the world. And that guides and protects us. And it's more real than we are in a way. It's almost like our higher self. But at the same time, it's very hard to pin down and we shouldn't take it too literally. So we have this problem of, it's like seeing a UFO that you think is a nuts and bolts craft but you can never lay hands on one. So it is kind of, for that moment, a physical thing, but it's also an image. And we seem to have only two choices these days. That a thing is either a fact, it's either literally true, or it's completely imaginary and untrue. And I'm saying that that's a false division which other cultures aren't troubled by. A true thing isn't necessarily literally a fact, mm -hmm. like a myth. It's a true story, but it's not literally true. It's not like history. So it's a very, very hard notion for us to grasp. I spend a whole book, you know, trying to sort this out in my own mind because I was brought up as a Western person who believes in facts and takes things literally and so on. 
And so really it was an exercise in dismantling my own extreme literalism, you know, so that, you know, you can reach the point where you don't have to believe in the historical fact of the Garden of Eden, for instance, but you can believe that it's a fundamentally true story. It's a myth which contains, you know, all sorts of interesting information about all sorts of things, the nature of sin, the origin of consciousness, perhaps, our relationship with the dead, all sorts of very, very profound things in this wonderful, wonderful story. So it is true, but it's not perhaps literally so. Right. I really love some of the stuff Joseph Campbell has said about myth, that like almost that these myths predate man, that they're so baked in that, you know, they're just about as close to the source as you can get. And potentially that these daemons act out their myths over and over again in our physical plane. Yes, yes. I just think that's an interesting idea. Is that kind of incorporated into your model? Yes, very much so. I mean, indeed, the great poet W.B. Yeats thought that he quotes some ancient Greek as saying that the daemons invented the myth so that it's kind of a self-circling thing. The myths that are contain diamonds and are about diamonds, but the diamonds also made up the myths, and the diamonds are immortals who, who, as Campbell says, precede us and are more important than us. Nobody knows who wrote these stories, you know. I mean, they don't have authors. They're not personal things. They belong to the collective. So they are, yes, the fundamental stories. And if you want to lead a psychically healthy life, you have to read the myths, and you'll find one that resonates with you more than others and maybe that's the myth you are without knowing it living out mm -hmm. and indeed you know in the philosopher's secret fire i try to suggest or indicate that modern myths or rather modern scientific hypotheses are quite often just the old myths rewritten and taken literally mm -hmm. Well, I see a big parallel to even just a novelist who wants to create a world like Middle Earth to play out with characters, a particular story arc. It's kind of similar. Yes, of course it is. Yes. And that is what the imagination does. But the job of our little imaginations is somehow to get in touch with this great universal imagination. And the more that we embody that universal imagination, the more our products are works of art, because they contain more and more levels in them. And some authors, Shakespeare, for instance, one of the reasons he's so good is that, you know, a million books have been written about Shakespeare, and he hasn't been got to the bottom of yet. But one of the tests of a work of art, in other words, is the number of levels it can be read on, whether it's a sculpture by Michelangelo or whether it's a novel or whether it's a play or a poetry. And that's one of the tests of art, that if it could be read on many, many levels, down to some universal level, it will never age and it will never be out of date and it will always be relevant to us. And that's what we find, for example, in Shakespeare, why he's justly famous. It suggests that his imagination was in touch with the collective, universal, romantic imagination. And thus, his plays are like myths. And that's why so many of them echo existing myths. 
that he rewrites them and uses them for his own purposes. So that's what I think roughly about art and life, Greg. <laughs> well, it's kind of funny because the, say, the hero's journey myth is something that I think Hollywood has figured out and cashed in on for many years over and over and over again. They've kind of broken the code, so to speak, and built an empire on it. Yes. I mean, George Lucas famously said that he drew on Joseph Campbell for the basic heroic journey of Star Wars and so on. He drew on Campbell, the hero of a thousand faces. And, you know, indeed, there aren't that many stories, you know, <laughs> and all the stories are really, even in novels, if they're any good as novels, they echo mythic themes. For example, Boy Meets Girl, Boy Loses Girl, Boy Gets Girl Again is a recapitulation of the ancient myth of Eros and Psyche. And we never tire of that myth. That is the basic formula of the romantic with a small r novel. And most, if not all novels, I must be drunk to be saying this, but most involve some kind of other world journey. Now, that may not be supernatural. It might be the journey from one land to another or one class to another, or it involves some kind of imaginative shock to the main protagonist that they find themselves in another world. Obviously, it might be the other world of illness, the medical other world, or it might be the underworld. That's a great theme, the going down into the underworld of Hades. And that's what a lot of crime is about. You go into the underworld of criminality or the mafia or whatever. So these are all ancient myths which are retold again and again, but the settings change, but the motifs remain the same. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting when you unpack that, that we just haven't got bored with it yet. But I also find it really interesting that Socrates would talk about contact with his own daemon pretty openly, as did writers like Yeats, who you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. And you just wouldn't see that today. But I guess what are some of the things that you've picked up on that they have said about their own daemons or facilitating that contact? Well, I mean, it's only our culture that doesn't really believe in personal daemons. A lot of other cultures do, and they often believe it's one of their ancestors. For instance, I think amongst uh, northern Siberians and some Inuit tribes, you know, they won't be given a name immediately until it's established which ancestor is protecting and guiding them, and then they'll be named after that ancestor. In Plato, it's not an ancestor. It's a kind of a more neutral daimon who is allotted to you before you're reborn. And it's interesting that, yes, not everybody's aware of it. I don't know. Perhaps they are more aware of it than they'll say, or they don't have the language for it. But certainly exceptional men, and you mentioned Yeats, and I would mention Jung, for instance, they were very aware of their daemon, and they called him a daemon. And they were aware of, you know, the paradoxical role that the daemon plays in your life, because it drives you quite ruthlessly to fulfill yourself, or to fulfill its plan for you. The daemon has a blueprint of what your life should be. It isn't fatalistic. It's not predestined in any way. It's got quite a lot of room, quite a lot of leeway in it. 
But basically, there is a kind of, we all have a plan that we're supposed to enact or unfold, or as Jung would say, individuate, coming into ourselves and fulfilling ourselves, self-realizing ourselves. And they were aware of this kind of ruthlessness that often it would take them down paths that was against their will, you know, that you had to sacrifice certain things, like, for instance, you know, you might have to sacrifice earthly love or something because the daemon wanted to keep you following a path, in their case, writing or pursuing psychiatry or something. So there are casualties along the way, and, you know, it can bring great sadness, and it can bring suffering and can bring pain. But basically, you know, there are compensations. What you get instead is a life of meaning and the life you're supposed to have led. That's more or less how I understand it. Mm-hmm. I love that concept that our daemon has a plan for us. Of course, we talked today about finding your path or doing what you were born to do. But it's provocative to think some overarching entity is trying to nudge us towards a certain path we might not be aware of. I'm just compelled by that. I want to see my daemon's blueprint. Like, let's collaborate. Let's negotiate a bit here. You know? <laughs> I think you already are without knowing it, you know. Yeah, that's probably true. But I guess I would ask, is there a way to better connect or align with our daemon or learn what it wants from us so that we're not in a life of constant conflict or some sad cubicle situation? Yeah, ask it. I get nothing. <laughs> and it may not give a direct answer as it did to Socrates, but even Socrates, who was the wisest man in Greece, it didn't give him clear instructions. It tended to say no. <laughs> in other words, it tended to stop him when he was doing something that was displeasing to the gods. You know, he would suddenly <laughs> stop in mid-sentence and say, oh, I'm not going there. I've just heard no from my daemon. But, you know, there are examples of people who have had direct instructions. Now, sometimes it's from Jesus or God or the Holy Ghost. But it may be that's how they interpret it. And I'm not going to say that, oh, it's not really. God, it's just your diamond. I think the diamond might just be the face that God shows to us. I use the word God loosely, you know, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. the divine plan, you know, whatever. That the trouble with huge things like God and the divine plan and the Godhead and the deity is that they're not very personal. You know, it's very hard for us to believe that such a thing takes a personal interest in us. And yet, in Christianity, we are sure that he does. And it may well be that the daimon is just the personal face that the impersonal deity shows to us. But that's just a working hypothesis, Greg, because, you know, I wouldn't be an expert on that. <laughs> it's my own kind of feeling about my own daimon. You know, I feel that there are greater powers still behind my daimon, you know. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And it gets really interesting when you think about say, Constantine's vision or something that you wrote about that was new to me, that Napoleon used to see a glowing orb that sometimes came as a dwarf dressed in red. I've also heard that Columbus, on his journey to America, he wrote about some orbs that flew around the sky, went down in the water underneath the boat and came out the other side. Like, when you think about those kind of things, it starts to be like this right place, right time type of situation where these entities can change the course of our world pretty dramatically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, I think a lot of people do get fairly clear instructions. They either see a light that seems to be intelligent to them and tells them things. They hear voices that say enigmatic sentences to them. Do I not quote the story of Jack Prieger, who was a farmer in Wales, and he's ploughing his field one day, and he hears a voice saying, you've got to be a doctor. And he thinks that's a bit funny. Hmm. Well, actually, he thinks he's going mad. So he tests the voice and says, who says so? And the voice says, I say so. And he says, well, who are you? And the voice says, well, I'm the paraclete. So he goes home and he thinks, what the hell is that? Mm-hmm. So he looks up paraclete in the dictionary and it says, paraclete, holy ghost. And he thinks, well, there's a thing. <laughs> so that's kind of convincing because, you know, the paraclete tricked him by telling him a word he'd never heard before. So it was all the more convincing to him. Anyway, he became a very famous doctor. He works on the streets of India, still there, I think. Wow. A very great man, you know. Now, in his case, that wasn't the personal diamond. Or was it? Was it the personal diamond? They're great tricksters, and they have a sense of humor. And the diamond might have been saying, I'm the paraclete, in order to convince him, because he hadn't heard that word before, and convince him that he was really in touch with the Holy Ghost. Who knows? I find the uh, trickster personality element to be quite interesting. I mean, some people are fearful of it. They equate it to something more demonic, like we started talking about. But I think of it like I've heard some people say that the best personification of the trickster is probably Bugs Bunny. And that is the model I try to think about when kind of fleshing out the trickster personality Uh, Because he's just never worried about anything, always one step ahead, not really causing anybody harm, but definitely mixing things up. Yeah, yeah. Bugs Bunny is like Br'er Rabbit. Yeah. They're both direct descendants of Hare. And the Hare is a trickster figure in so many Native American mythologies and so on. So, you know, they're direct descendants of that. It's one of the things that are kind of monolithic, monotheistic scientific culture doesn't take much account of, which is powers that are genuinely tricky, that our cultures are so very serious, it doesn't really take into account the ridiculous. But in pagan cultures, that is to say non-Christian cultures, there are trickster gods like Hermes or Loki or even Krishna, who plays tricks and so on that they are both sublime and ridiculous at the same time. You know, they see no problem in that. They have a sense of humor. They play tricks. And Christianity has excluded that element, mm-hmm. that very necessary kind of psychological principle, and has tended to demonize it. You know, the devil becomes the arch and tricky, cunning deceiver. But a sensible mythology takes account of trickster gods who can both enlighten you and deceive you. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, with the Catholic Church, I mean, when you set off on a mind control and wealth extraction venture, who has time for jokes? Well, exactly, (laughs) yes. It's all got a bit serious, and you've got to let things through the cracks. Otherwise, it all becomes too brittle and rigid and dogmatic and so on. The the trickster loosens things up, keeps things fluid and so on. Mm Mm-hmm. My favorite manifestation of the soul of the world is the alchemical figure of Mercurius, 
when I was writing my long alchemical book, which is called Mercurius. That was my initiatory journey, really. But in trying to sort of crack the code of alchemy, I found that it wasn't a code that you could crack. It wasn't like that at all. It was a mystery you entered into and you started to embody it. And so my book about alchemy became a book of alchemy, that it was partly written by Mercurius himself, who began to work his tricksterish nature through me. Mm. And sometimes even my hand would even move, you know, without me willing it, you know. And I'd write things I never knew I knew, you know. That happens to some extent with all intense, concentrated writing. But when you're writing about alchemy, it's quite spooky. And that turned my worldview upside down, really. Alchemy is such a deep and fantastic discipline and so contradictory and weird and strange. But it deals all the time in the problem of the spiritual and the material you know, that they move in and out of each other the whole time. The volatile and the fixed, as the alchemists call it, you know, sulfur and mercury, all these principles are constantly changing into each other and so on. It's the best model of the psyche that I know. And that's why Jung seized on it. When he read alchemical texts, he suddenly realized that this was the historical counterpart of his own psychology of the unconscious. Mm-hmm. And I haven't read Mercurius yet, but it is on my list. And it does tie into maybe some things you do talk about in the Philosopher's Secret Fire a bit. But with the context of the daemonic realm, you write about alchemy in that book. Of course, the first level understanding of alchemy is turning lead into gold. And then for a fringe show like this, we have a lot of guests who say, no, no, no. It's really just an allegory for enlightenment and turning spiritual lead into gold. And yes, there is a deep study and path of initiation there. But I don't think that that's the end of the road. And perhaps when you fully grasp the daemonic realm, transmutation of real material can take place. Or maybe a daemon can bring something from the gods that is a perfectly pure gold of some kind. I'm not sure. But is that entertainable in your concept of alchemy? Well, there are some very fine and interesting stories about transmutations taking place. It's impossible to say but the whole purpose of alchemy is not to let spirit and matter become too separate. You know, people who say it's only really a spiritual discipline, I think are completely wrong. The alchemists were working with matter, with substances, and they didn't just see those chemical transformations as allegories of their own inner transformation. I think that the two leached into each other, that the inside became the outside and the outside became the inside. And so it's not possible to say, finally, when the spiritual and the material are all dissolved, separated, and rejoined at some higher level, like being twice born, it's not possible to say quite what the result of that is and what people might be capable of or whether matter can indeed be transmuted. Well, I know that it's it's a mystery as difficult and as deep as, say, the doctrine of the incarnation, that Christ is both God and man simultaneously. I mean, that is, you know, the ultimate paradox. You can't think it. You can only relate to it through some other faculty, not through reason, but you have to relate to it through another faculty, such as imagination or perhaps faith. So it's the great mystery, as Paracelsus called it, 
one can't say for certain whether what the result of making the philosopher's stone or transmuting yourself through the elixir, what the outcome might be. Mm -hmm. Yes, man. And here's a, a quote about the true nature of the great work that I took to pull out of the philosopher's secret fire to kind of get at what you're talking about here. But it says, the great work takes place in a realm intermediate between mind and matter. It's a daemonic process, a chemical theater in which material processes and psychic transformation interpenetrate. I mean, wow, that, that pretty much says it. Yeah, that sounds quite good. Yeah. <laughs> did I write that? You did. Well, who knows who had your hand, but <laughs> it's got your name on the front. Uh, yeah, well, good. And, <laughs> That's not bad. Not bad at all. And that idea is sort of contained in this story that you have in The Philosopher's Secret Fire from 17th century scientist Helvicius, I think is how you'd pronounce it. But yeah. he says in his book, The Golden Calf, that on December 27, 1666, he was visited by a stranger who criticized his dismissal of alchemy, saying, would you even know the Philosopher's Stone if you saw it? And then finally, he shows the guy three pieces of stone. And after a lot of convincing, he lets him keep one. And he's supposed to come back the next day, but he doesn't, which is a common broken promise of the daemons. And this guy's wife throws it in the fire and it unfolds into gold. It unpacks itself into this gold substance. They take the gold to an expert who says it's the finest, purest gold he's ever seen. And it's like, bam, I guess that is an archetype that... As weird as it sounds, as fringe as it sounds, has happened before multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it does sound like a kind of a myth or a fairy tale. And yet it's presented as history. And even Leibniz, the great philosopher, came over especially to have a look at that gold and to check it out, you know. So the gold existed. And I don't think he was, Helvetius was playing tricks, you know. So who knows? It's one of the best stories of transmutation, but there are a lot of others, you know. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't thought very outlandish in those days. You know, it was thought possible to transmute metals because they believed that all metals were sort of growing and evolving into the perfect condition of gold. And all you had to do somehow was to accelerate that process. This motif reoccurs in the modern folklore surrounding red mercury, which is supposed to be this wonderful substance. It's interesting that it's called mercury, although it's not mercury, just like alchemy. And the Russians claim to have some, and the idea is you can, I don't know, it's credited with many powers, like enabling you to make a kind of suitcase-sized neutron bomb and things like that. And one of its properties is supposed to be able to accelerate nuclear fission at a much higher rate or something like that. You know, the scientists who claim to have seen this stuff or to have it are always a bit vague, and they always promise to bring definitive proof next time you meet them, but they never turn up or they're arrested or whatever. You know, It's one of those interesting modern things which echo alchemy. Mm -hmm. It doesn't go away. Even in the sort of material scientific world, there are sort of alchemical myths. It's not just a kind of allegory of psychological transformation, but it is that as well. It's almost bottomless, Greg, alchemy, you know. I mean, I didn't get to the bottom of it. I just sort of gave up after three or four years of studying it. But it had worked its magic on me, I can tell you. You know, I had a completely different worldview. But 
as with all these things, you know, you have to draw a line somewhere, otherwise you go mad, you know, <laughs> because it is a bottomless mystery. Yes. Now, another motif that I liked that you discuss when dealing with daemons is some type of treasure. To quote the book, you say, Ah, yes, the tale of lost treasure is familiar across the world. Like the crocks of gold pointed out to the Irish by the fairies, the visionary condition is a fragile one. Once the enchantment is broken by summons of expediency or common sense, the treasure evaporates and the great secret is again forgotten. I mean, that is an archetype. I've read Fordian stories that uh, a daemon comes and tells someone, hey, there's a treasure here. They come back the next day and it's not there. Or it just, as you say, once the enchantment wears off, reality changes and that's gone forever. What do you think is going on in these situations? Or are there tales where that treasure is actually extracted? Well, you know, Irish fairy lore, you know, the fairies will tell you where Gold is buried, is the idea. But I don't know of any instances where people have actually dug up gold, except possibly when they've dug up places that are thought to be haunts of the fairies and turn out to be Bronze Age tumuli, which do contain some sort of archaeological treasure. But what it's really about is that if you're taken by the fairies and you perform a service for them, they might pay you in silver or gold. But when you get home, it turns out to be dried leaves and so on. And I think, you know, that is a kind of universal mythological idea. And it's about the difficulty of translating the other world into this world and vice versa. You know, there is a kind of barrier. Otherwise, everything would just sort of dissolve seamlessly into everything else. And so it is difficult. But Joseph Campbell's hero, the motif is definitely the journey into the other world where you do bring back something. And you bring back something for the good of humanity. And it's usually something like a magical plant that heals or an elixir of some sort. But whether that happens in real life, as opposed to myth, I'm not sure. I think it does, because it's a symbol of knowledge and enlightenment. And if you travel into the other world, you come back changed. Mm -hmm. you, you do come back with a secret or a treasure, but it probably isn't a material treasure. You probably don't come back with a bag of coins. You just come back with some deeper insight into the nature of reality. So that seems to be fairly straightforward, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. And you make some excellent points too about the greys and how they fit into the big picture. Of course, our Western culture lacks an initiation ritual for adulthood. And maybe that is why the greys have emerged at this point in the timeline. But you have an excellent comparison between the greys and those adulthood initiation rites of some African tribes. Can you talk to us about how they compare and contrast? Well, the point is that when trying to explain or do something to elucidate the nature of the greys, you know, you're really clutching at straws. So I cast around me. First of all, I thought they may well be, well, clearly in their behavior, they were analogous to ancient fairy lore, for instance. So, I mean, when I pointed that out in my book, not many people held that view. Jacques Vallée had already gestured towards it in some way. And Bernard Mehust in France had also suggested it. 
But it's fairly commonplace now, but it wasn't in 95 or 96 when I wrote my book. And having done that, you know, I then thought, well, what are they doing if they're abducting you just as the fairies do? Perhaps it's some form of initiation. And while I was reading anthropology, you know, I was struck by the way in which in some societies, masked elders of the tribe appear in that dead of night and snatch their children away. Um, the children kind of know who they are in one sense, but in another sense, they don't. As far as they're concerned, they're going to suffer something really terrible. They might even die because the stories are that these are puberty initiation rites. And they're told that, you know, they're going to undergo these rites and that they are potentially lethal. And they're taken away into the bush and they're often buried in a shallow grave and they're starved and so on. And then they're dragged out and circumcised, which is painful, or given scars and tattoos, things like that. So, you know, the message is, is that, you know, the idea that we have to be initiated at puberty, that that's a universal right, that's a universal custom. If we're not initiated, if we don't potentially die and be reborn, that is, die to ourselves or suffer a kind of ego death and rebirth, then we never really attain adulthood. And it may be that because we in the West almost completely lack any serious initiation rites at puberty, any formal ceremonies of initiation anymore, we have a lot of informal ones, people joining gangs and they have the initiation rights or even customs at school are kind of, you know, if you're a new boy or girl at school, there are certain initiations you have to go through, but they're informal and they can often look like terrorizing or bullying. You know, it struck me that because we lack these, perhaps the other world is willy nilly initiating us mm -hmm. and that we are, as it were, calling forth from the depths of our own collective unconscious these kinds of initiatory entities, these rather strange mask-like creatures who come and take us away and subject us to painful operations. And then I was reminded too of the model of all initiations, which are the exceptional initiations undergone by shamans who travel into the other world and are dismembered. And, you know, I read accounts of abductees who felt that they're limbs had been twisted or their brains had been taken out and put back in or their eyeballs had been taken out and put back in. These are familiar images from shamanic initiations in Siberian regions. So that's what I tried to do. I tried to kind of suggest that the greys may not be just an isolated, weird, impossible phenomenon, that they may belong to this family of either normal tribal initiation rites or possibly to more advanced shamanic initiation rites. Mm -hmm. I love that analysis. And to take it a step further, you have a small section in Daemonic Reality titled Why Greys, Why Now? And I really like this paragraph where you say, we have the appearance of small and apparently malevolent gray aliens which look like a regression but is much more like an improvement they have recovered something of their original demonic nature not so much imitating the triumphal scientific perspective as parodying it 
and so drawing attention to its darker side. They treat us much like we treat the natural world, sampling, analyzing, and operating on us with exemplary scientific detachment in their lab-like spacecraft. They issue no warnings about the abuse of technology. They simply turn it on us, translating its potential for power, knowledge, and destruction into an image of a super technology which enthralls and initiates us, thereby destroying the technological perspective itself. <laughs> I mean, wow, man, that is a mouthful, but I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think you're really getting at the core of the technological aspect of the gray situation. I mean, do you think that's kind of the point? They're holding up a mirror to our technological age and trying to wake us up by treating us as coldly as we treat nature? Well, I think it's, once again, I was clutching at straws, but, <laughs> you know, I couldn't come up with anything better. And I haven't since, really. I got the idea from Jung, who said that, you know, the unconscious shows us the face that we show to it. And so if we treat the other world as a kind of, if we try and probe it technologically, it's going to come back at us with a kind of fake technology, you know, which is, you know, their technology isn't very good, it turns out. You know, they can't do the simplest thing without causing us pain and distress. Have they not discovered anesthesia in the other world, you know? So my idea was that, yes, they do sort of mirror some aspect of us, and that aspect of us which is, one of the least desirable aspects of West culture, which is this overweening kind of rationalism, which doesn't allow for any world but this world. And I think they're coming to tell us that on the contrary, there are other worlds. And we mistakenly say, oh, well, you know, we still take this rationally and say, oh, they must be from other planets. But I see no reason to believe that they're from other planets. They could well be from our own unconscious lives, where the unconscious is as Jung says, an alien country outside the ego. Mm, I like that phrase. So you mentioned spirit and soul a couple of times. It's kind of late in the game, but this is maybe one of the last major things I wanted to ask you was I didn't get to read The Secret Tradition of the Soul, but I have heard you talk about the difference between soul and spirit, kind of like a left brain, right brain, or an inner conflict between logic and emotion. Can you flesh that out a little bit, the way you define spirit and soul? Oh, it's very difficult. As you say, you know, we tend to divide the world into two, spirit and matter, mind and body, emotion and intellect, romantic and classic, yin and yang. We could go on forever, you know. And I think that the world is kind of twofold. And I chose the words spirit and soul simply because they're often conflated and used interchangeably. But I wanted to distinguish between them and draw them apart and use them not as words that have definitions but symbols which suggest a certain perspective on the world these are two different kinds of perspective on the world and it was really kind of evoked in me by the new age one of the things that gets on my nerves slightly about new age people is they're very spiritual and by this I mean they're interested in the images associated with spirituality are always ones of light, height, ascent, climbing higher, purity, moving up the hierarchy, becoming more pure, becoming more holy. Whereas the word soul, for me, is more congenial, and I see that as more psychological, not less theological that 
more psychological. And soul is more interested in descent and depth and the muddle of this world. And its path isn't straight towards heaven, but kind of a labyrinthine wandering path towards the underworld and so on, where transformations take place and so on. Science is a spiritual activity. It's governed by the god Apollo, who's the god of spirituality. He's far-seeing Apollo. He's associated with the sun and with light and enlightenment and illumination. Whereas soul is more associated with Hermes, he's more tricky. He's a thorn in the side of Apollo. He um, steals his cattle. He misses with his head. And to bring them together is quite difficult. They manage it. They do it through music, but that's another story. And the hermetic path is the path of soul. And it's full of, I don't know, there aren't many jokes in the spiritual world, are there? You know, there are sort of cosmic jokes, which aren't very funny. But, you know, real jokes occur in the soul world of the hermetic universe whenever you're meditating and being very very spiritual soul always interrupts you with burps and farts and giggles you know but soul doesn't like a single-minded monotheistic search for light and purity it likes many gods not just one god it likes muddle and mud and it likes poetry Spirit likes prose, you know. In my chapter on this subject, you know, I evoke all sorts of associations with each of these symbols in order to try and suggest the two different perspectives because you can't really define the perspectives. That's a spiritual activity to define and to pin things down. Whereas the soul is much more symbolic, poetic, imagistic, and so on. So I try and use the sole approach to distinguishing between it and spirit. Tell your viewers to buy that book and read it. The two chapters I most wanted to write in The Secret Tradition of the Soul were the one on spirit and soul and the one on the personal daimon and the one on the afterlife at the end. Those three chapters were the most important for me to write because I hadn't kind of coped with any of that in my previous books. So it's the third, really, book in a kind of a trilogy. Mm -hmm. And after that, I went back to novels because being more enamored of soul than spirit, I wanted to tell stories. You know, the soul hates philosophy and spiritual disciplines and things like that mm -hmm. and prosaic theology. It just wants stories, myths. So, you know, I returned to daimonic reality in a sense when I wrote my novel, The Good People which is all about alien abduction and fairies and so on, because I felt I still had unfinished business. But I'd written a prose book about it, you know, and I wanted to write about it from the inside to create characters who were abducted and who really had other world experiences. So The Good People is a modern fairy tale set in London in 1989 at the height of the abduction phenomenon, the height of other things too, which is significant, like the Berlin Wall coming down. So that was my last novel but one and i'd like to mention my most recent one of course which is a counterblast to the whole idea of daimonic reality and it's a novel based on the life of the danish philosopher soren kierkegaard who was very much an either or man rather than a both and man and it's a work about the daimonic struggling with the spiritual you know which is embodied in kierkegaard's life and work 
But once again, I didn't want to write a boring book about Kierkegaard or a biography or something. I wanted to write a book in which he speaks. You know, he is the main character in the book. And thus demonstrate existential philosophy from a personal and passionate point of view rather than looking at it objectively. That's enough publicity, I think, Greg, don't you? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I had maybe a, a couple little more things to help you out there, but in terms of spirit and soul, the quote I had written down that I really liked is you had once expressed it as, spirit has high ideas it thinks are new, and soul says there are no new ideas, just repackaged ones. And uh, I just thought that was fun, kind of spoke to exactly the breakdown you were giving us. And like we said in the beginning, you consider yourself more a novelist. And like inventors, some of the best fiction writers have talked about these worlds kind of coming to them, sometimes nagging them, compelling them to write more about this world that they conjured forth, like uh, Tolkien or Ursula Le Guin. And uh, it just it just has that kind of shape to it. It seems to fit in the box of the things that we've talked about as if these ideas are seeded by their daemons. And I just wanted to ask you, and as we're closing this out, has your study and your understanding of all this kind of stuff helped your novel writing? Do you think you've connected with your own daemon in a way that plays out in your fiction and your world building? I think it's the other way around. I think it was writing novels and engaging deeply with the imagination. I mean, there is nothing like sitting up in the middle of the night in a room full of cigarette smoke and coffee sinking deep into a story which you're partly inventing, but is partly inventing you with people who are coming alive. You know, it's almost like a shamanistic experience. You know, all novelists and poets have that imaginative capacity within them. I'm not a great novelist, but I'm good enough, if you know what I mean, to have sunk into that imaginative level where it's no longer your personal invention or fantasy, you know, where you are engaging with the daimonic realm. And so when I read stories about people encountering aliens on lonely rural roads or whatever, it didn't strike me as outlandish. You know, I was able to bring my novelist skills to bear on these so-called real-life encounters. Mm -hmm. So I think it was that way around, you know. And I thought, yes, well, the imagination can do that too, as it were. If it's a whole other world that you can sink into it's also another world that can manifest in this world suddenly, you know, as spontaneous, anomalistic events. Mm. And, you know, these books are a bit older. And, you know, if everything is myth, when you look at our problems today or the things like the Internet or the polarizing American president, do you see these as relating to old myths? Are there specific myths that you think we're that are, that are in our cultural cycle right now? Oh, well, um, you know, I do write a bit about technology in the Philosopher's Secret Fire. Mm -hmm. I could have written a whole book on that. In fact, the Philosopher's Secret Fire was going to be 20 books originally, but I thought I'll just write 20 chapters and not bore people to tears. But the one on technology is definitely about how technology is a literalization of what we used to call magic. Doing harm at a distance, for instance, is what bullets look like or conjuring up the other world is what television looks like with its little people moving around, you know. The internet is absolutely a 
kind of literalized version of the soul of the world. The dream is is to connect everybody by invisible threads. Mm. You know, Hermes is behind that because he's the god of communication. And as I point out that when you, he's the only god that travels from the world of the gods to the world of man to the underworld of Hades. In other words, his trajectory is vertical. He's the god of depth and he connects the above and the below. That's why he's hermetic, he's Hermes. And if you deny him his depth, he just works on the horizontal plane at high speed. And I think he's the god behind the internet, which lacks that vertical dimension and is more horizontal. It's spread out entirely over the globe and moves faster and faster and faster until who knows what will happen. It will probably crash. Mm. In other words, you know, all these technological things are foreshadowed in mythic images, as far as I'm concerned, or else in magical and shamanistic practice. And we've just been driven to, you know, the age-old dream of flight. We're so gripped by that dream. And, of course, shamans can fly quite easily. You just leave your body and soar off. I know many people who aren't shamans who can do that. I've done it myself. But somehow, you know, we've been so gripped by that dream of flight that, you know, we had to invent these cumbersome flying machines. You know, that's what the Industrial Revolution was dedicated to doing, really, was literalizing and making physical with all its engineering the age-old imaginative flights and capacities and superpowers of the magicians and shamans. Don't you think, Greg? Yeah. <laughs> <Provocative>. <laughs> you don't have to agree to that. It's only an idea. Yes. I, well, it's an idea that I, I really like. And good. also, I guess, promotional-wise, you do do courses on some of this stuff with your siblings if people are near you, right? Well, we do about one a year because it's hard to get organized. But we've just done one, actually, about 10 days ago. And I think six Americans came. <laughs> We only have 12 people. It's very intimate. And it's about the mythic imagination, really. But I've taken a back seat as regards talking. My brother, who's an excellent poet, runs it. And we get wonderful guest speakers in, Jungians and novelists and poets to come and talk. And my sister also runs it. My sister's written one of the best studies of the daimonic, actually. It's called Mystery Big Cats. I should give that a plug. It's about Black Panthers appearing in Britain. And um, she made an in-depth study of that. It's one of the best sort of micro studies of daimonic phenomena. And I warmly recommend it to all your listeners, Greg. <laughs> That's great. I think it's right up our alley. Yeah. No, it's great. You should have her on. She's great. <laughs> that could happen. Yeah. And uh, we mentioned some of your recent novels, but maybe also tell people about your website, because that's a website that you share with your siblings and their work as well. Well, we have separate pages on it. You know, it's really an independent website. So, yeah, my website is www.harper.org slash Patrick. But if you Google Patrick Harper, I think my website comes up at the top, you know. It's got to. It's got to. Google's yeah. got this thing figured out, I hear. Well, luckily, I have this funny spelling of Harper with the U-R at the end, which distinguishes me from all the other Harpers. So that's a bit of luck, yeah. <laughs> well, 
Right on, Patrick. I really can't thank you enough. I thought this was a great time. I had a guest, Joshua Cutchen, who really cited you as one of his inspirations. So I really sought out your work. And Oh, God bless him. Yeah, he's done some great work, Joshua. Yeah, yeah. He has. He has. And, of course, you inspired that. And I think you've done some great work, too. Oh, thank you, Greg. And thank you for having me on. It's very kind of you. It was a lot of fun. And I'm sorry if I rambled incoherently, but it's difficult stuff to talk about. And I'm not very articulate. <laughs> yeah, you are. It was great. So, awesome, man. I appreciate the time. Have a great evening. Take care out there. Same to you. Bye-bye. Sweet Jesus, hallelujah, people. Patrick Harper, rocking us like a hurricane. If you remember back to Joshua Cutchin, he was the first person to make me aware of Patrick Harper. And once I read Demonic Reality and the Philosopher's Secret Fire, man, I was blown away. Well, it turned out to be a pretty great episode. And I think these two books are really under the radar gems for this type of material. And you know, I am a big fan of paranormal topics, but a lot of the time, it's hard to have a two-hour conversation that offers a different perspective, because I don't want to just have the same conversation about these things every time. And I think offering up the ways in which the Greek philosophers analyze the paranormal and how initiation relates to the greys, those are both great chunks that I knew we'd be building around, and it turned out to be quite interesting. Not just paranormal entities, but also a deep and rich look at alchemy and a pretty nuanced look at the power of myth and the imagination. These are not simple ideas to me anymore. They're very complex and quite important. So big thanks to Patrick for taking the leap of faith and spending the two hours with me. We covered a lot of ground in the first hour, but in the Plus Show, we also talked about a few things like anthropology and the paranormal. Looking back at Dr. Jack Hunter, that's another reason why I thought he was a great guest, because he could talk about these things from the anthropology side, and that's a unique perspective as well. We also talked about things like witches and orbs, science and myth, that was interesting, conspiracy, paranoia, and ritual magic, Virgin Mary manifestations, and the ancient myths that seem to be manifesting in today's era. If you heard the Plus Show, there is a funny moment when Patrick asks me to describe my favorite conspiracy, and I laid it out there, and then there was a bit of a pause, and he says, really? <laughs> and I just thought that was really funny. Probably my favorite part of the show was that pause, because I don't need my guests to agree or accept every single thing that I entertain. Every guest is their own special person here for their own unique reason. <laughs> Obviously, when it's all said and done, we can see that Patrick is more than at home here. But when it gets to the elite consorting with multidimensional entities to dominate the planet, well, maybe he breaks from me a little bit. <laughs> but I think that's where we should be with our worldviews. There are things I know, and there are things I entertain as possibilities, and I'm comfortable with all of it. And I don't really need to convince anyone else of it. And as we go into another holiday week, I think we should all remember to just smile and nod when one of our less than enlightened friends or relatives has to spout off about this or that. Don't take the bait and actually just look for common ground. We're all people, so there has to be some. In fact, we're all standing on common ground, actually. So think about that. 
I don't know that our feelings about politics and religion used to be worn on our sleeve or on our hats the way it is now. I think it was actually considered pretty rude to talk about those things. And I think maybe we should go back to that when we're with our families. There's just more to life than our political opinions, at least I hope. Also, tonight is another THC joint session. Come and tell me all your wild insights and experiences. We'll have a drink and a smoke and a gay old time. Check Facebook, Twitter, or the Plus site for the actual call and info sometime after 5, 6 p.m., but before 7 p.m. Pacific. It should not be hard to get yourself in if you're interested. I also wanted to give a shout out to Gramerica. Apparently, they have officially been banned from PayPal. Suddenly and without warning, it seems PayPal decided they don't want Gramerica's business. And this is one of those things that has been happening, so I like to point it out when it does. And I don't really care about Alex Jones. I can't sign off on everything he says. I don't vouch for him. I don't support censorship in any form. But Gramerica is a lot closer to what I do, and so when that happens to someone like them, I think it's pretty messed up. I consider their show interesting and entertaining, but I don't even consider it that controversial, so I am kind of confused by this. But I've been transitioning away from PayPal over the last year. I don't mess with any of the Plus accounts that are still on those plans, but I did remove PayPal from the new sign-up options because I just feared this exact kind of thing. I know it's tough out there, and people like to just have what they can for free, but it's important to actually support things that you want to stay around. Support Gramerica if you listen to them, sign up for THC Plus if you listen to me, because we can weather any storm if we're well prepared, and becoming a member now helps me to do that if the day ever comes, fingers crossed, knock on me. But there it is, guys. I got to go get beautified because I'm going to be on camera soon. Thanks for listening. I really am lucky and appreciative every day. And I want to keep you entertained. And I try to find roads less traveled in which to do that. So I've done what I can. Your move, diamonds, keepers of alchemical secrets and facilitators of the big gray initiation. Your fucking move. Well, they tie that yellow ribbon around the oak tree. They've worn out all the prayer in their hearts All along thought they were rooting for the home team As they're sent to the game and torn apart We twist this tourniquet upon the pipeline That he carries all the pain in the world As we blindly clap and cheer from the sidelines It's clear Oh
Smoking gun.